Hi folks, we want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time here at the Kerbinsville Christian Church. And we are in the midst of our survey of the Old Testament. And we are in that section of the Old Testament, which we will have entitled the return to the land, looking at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And actually, we're in the last lesson today. We're in lesson 11, where we're going to focus on the concluding chapters of Esther as we end the story, the narrative, as the writer presents it to us. Now, if you remember, last week we concluded chapter 7 with the execution of Haman. Remember Haman? Because of his irritation and offense towards Mordecai, had a decree given in the signet, authorizing it by the king's signet ring that all the Jews throughout the Medo-Persian Empire were to be killed. Of course, Esther intervenes, and of course, Haman ends up dead. Now, we're going to come to chapter 8. Now, here's the problem. The problem is, is that although Haman is dead, the king's decree is still in effect. So basically, the Jews are still threatened. They're still in danger of being killed on a specific date that Haman had set throughout the empire. So that's what we're going to be looking at today is actually the deliverance of the Jews. Okay, the deliverance of the Jews. So let's get right into it. Okay, so let's start with chapter 8. We're going to look at the second proclamation. So there has to be another proclamation. All right, so here's what I want you to see. On the day that Haman was executed, Xerxes I gave Esther the house of Haman. Now, this was a custom in the ancient days that when your enemy was defeated, you, who was the offending party or the one who was victorious, you would take their house. Now, what does that mean, their house? You would take all that they owned, all their lands, all their treasuries, all their assets would belong to you. And Xerxes could do that because he's the ultimate authority. He's the absolute monarch in the empire. He gives it to Queen Esther. All right? So he gives Haman's house to Esther. Not just a house, but the estate. Everything. Now, Mordecai was brought before the king because Esther told the king that they were family. So the text is making it very clear now that at this point, Esther has revealed her nationality, that is, her people group, that is, she's Jewish. She's also now basically pointing out to the king who her family is. And, of course, that's Mordecai. Now, Obviously, we see that Mordecai is elevated. What does that mean? Well, the king gave Mordecai his signet ring, and Esther appointed Mordecai over Haman's house. So two things are happening here. Basically, Mordecai, who used to sit in the king's gate, that is, executing judgment there, is now given basically Haman's position. He's given the signet ring, he has the authority over the entire empire. And Esther now is giving him, appointing him to be the caretaker or the one who's over all of the assets of Haman. Now, just stop for a moment. I want you to think about that. Think about here is really the fulfillment of what 
Haman's wife and friends said that he would surely fall if Haman was a Jew. And of course he did. And with that fall, Haman lost everything to Mordecai. And that's what we're seeing here in chapter 8. Now, once again, Esther, Esther once again pleaded for the plight of her people before the king. All right, because, again, recognize that proclamation, the first one, which is basically genocide against the Jews, is still in effect. So she's again pleading for her people before the king. The king extended his golden scepter to Esther and she asked for a second decree. So basically he's showing that she has his favor. She can ask what she wants. And guess what? She does ask what she wants. She wants a second decree. She wants a second proclamation. Now what's this proclamation going to be? Well, it's completely different and upends the first one. In what way? Well, the second decree would revoke the instructions of the first decree. So basically, this second decree is making null and void the first decree. Remember the first decree is on a certain day. Their empire is to rise up and eliminate the Jews and plunder all of their assets. Now, the king gave Esther and Mordecai authority to write the decree. So the king says, okay, you, you want this decree? I agree with it. We'll revoke the first one with this decree. You do whatever you need to do. I give you the authority. Write the decree. So the king's scribes were called at Mordecai's command, and the decree was sent out. So the decree, and we're going to see what the details of that decree are here in a moment, they're sent out. Where do they go? Well, they, it goes throughout the empire, all the way from Ethiopia, from, from Egypt, all the way to India. Now, what does this decree do? Well, it allowed the Jews to gather and protect themselves against their enemies on a certain day. So on a certain day, what could the Jews do? They were allowed to gather and protect themselves against the enemies, against those folks who would be coming after them. And, and trust me, folks, they would know who these people are because these people probably have already revealed themselves already because of the first decree. So the decree was sent out to all of the provinces throughout the empire. They were sent out by horse, basically making this proclamation throughout the entire empire that the Jews could protect themselves on that day against their enemies. Mordecai, it's saying here now, at close to the end of chapter 8, Mordecai went out from the king's presence wearing royal robes and a crown, a golden crown. The robes were white and blue. So he went out he went in the way he went in, but he went out with a whole lot more authority and he sure looked the part. That's the reality of what we see here. Now, the Jews in Sushan, that's the capital city, and the provinces of the empire rejoiced over the decree. 
And of course they would. Why? Because remember, when the first decree went out, they mourned and fasted because there's nothing they could have done against it. There was no way to protect themselves from this decree. They were basically going to be slaughtered. But now with this decree, this second decree, it makes the first one null and void. And guess what? They have the option now to protect themselves. And so they rejoice. The Jews in Sushan and the Jews in the provinces rejoice over the decree. Well, that brings us to chapter 9. And I would refer to this as the vengeance of the Jews. Okay? The vengeance of the Jews. So chapter 9 basically begins that at an appointed day, the Jews turned the tables and overpowered those who hated them. So on that appointed day that was set, the Jews who, first of all, were the ones fearful before are not fearful now, they can attack their enemies, and guess what they do? They overpower them and take out those who hated them. Here's the other thing. No one could withstand the Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon all the peoples. So it, it, it's basically nobody was going to stand up for them. Nobody's going to do anything because they were afraid of them. Here's the other thing. They got a little bit of help. The officials of the empire helped the Jews because they feared Mordecai. So it wasn't just the Jews on their own doing this. They had help of the officials throughout the empire. Why? Because they were afraid of the top guy now. Remember, the top guy used to be Haman, but he's dead now. The top guy now is Mordecai, the Jew, who made this decree and was ensuring, obviously, that this decree was going to be carried out. And the officials were afraid of that. So here's what happened. They defeated their enemies throughout the empire and they destroyed 500 men in Sushan. Just alone in the capital city, they were able to eliminate 500 of their own enemies. 500 men died. Now, those who were killed in Sushan included the 10 sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So those who were killed, well, basically included Haman's sons, who would, of course, have the same hatred for the Jews and were very active, probably, because their dad set this in motion of wanting to eliminate the Jews so they get eliminated. Now, though their enemies were killed, here's the interesting thing. We're going to see this mentioned three specific times, and it's being mentioned here. Though their enemies were killed, the Jews did not take the plunder. They didn't plunder them. They didn't take their stuff. They just eliminated their enemies. So the text goes on then and says that the king received report concerning those killed in Sushan. So he obviously hears 500 of men have been killed. He's also out loud, the text says, he, he wonders... How many more have been killed throughout the empire? But here's what he does. He asks Esther if she had a petition since it would be granted her. He wants to make sure, okay, 500 have died. How many more have been killed? 
Is this enough or do you need something more? That's basically what's going on here. Is this enough or do you need something more? And he said, I'll give it to you. I'll do what you're asking. So notice what Esther asks. Esther asks for an additional day for the Jews to destroy their enemies in Sushan. Now, why would they need an additional day? They've already eliminated 500 people. Why, why, why is it that she needs an additional day? Well, it's probably very obvious, because Mordecai would be the one who's aware, that they didn't get everybody in that one day, and so she needs an additional day to allow this to happen. And it's only in Sushan, it's not throughout the empire, that you're going to see this. She also asked that the bodies of Haman's sons be hung for public display. Now again, let me remind you of what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the kind of gallows that we have in English, American culture that we've used for years now. We're talking about a, a huge pole that they would either hang the body from or impale on. So Haman's son were either going to be hung from a pole or impaled on a pole. Pretty gruesome. And she's asking for this to be done for public display. Why? Why would they do something like this? Well, a lot of the cultures back then, even up through in, in, into the Middle, a Middle, Middle Ages, would do something like this as a deterrent, would be what they would say, or a warning to those who would dare do this. This is what happens to you. So this is what she is asking for. Now, the king issued a decree granting the additional day of vengeance. So he issues the decree and says, okay, the Jews have one more day in Sushan to do what they have to do. And that same decree basically allowed for the bodies of the ten sons of Haman to be hung or impaled, so to speak. So on the next day, the Jews killed an additional 300 men. But again, second time it's saying it here, but they did not take the plunder. So on the next day, they kill an additional 300 men. Now, the Jews in the provinces had protected themselves by killing 75,000 men, but took no plunder. So in the provinces throughout the empire, and it was a pretty big empire, 75,000 were killed. But again, this is the third time it's mentioned, the Jews didn't take anything from their enemies. They took no plunder. So after the day of vengeance, te the text tells us in chapter 9, after the day of vengeance against their enemies, the Jews rested and feasted in celebration. So basically they rested, they took a break from the hard work of eliminating their enemies, and they had a feast they feasted in celebration. God has given us the victory here. Now, Mordecai then, when you get to the end of chapter 9, you're going to see that there is a feast that is instituted. And so chapter 9, verse 20 to 32, talks about the feast of Purim. Okay, so Mordecai sent letters to the Jews throughout the provinces 
commanding a yearly celebration. So basically, he was wanting them to remember what had happened here. So the Jews were to set aside the 14th and 15th day of Adar for the celebration. Now you say, George, when is the month of Adar? Well, first of all, you need to understand that these cultures operated by a lunar calendar. We operate by a Julian calendar. 365 days. A lunar calendar operates on a 360-day calendar. So typically, Adar in this calendar would fall somewhere in between February and March, depending on how the days flowed from the preceding year. So on the 15th and 14th and 15th of Adar, they were to set aside a time of celebration. Now, it was a celebration to mark the days that the Jews had rest from their enemies. So it basically was a celebration to remember this whole story of Haman wanting to eliminate them, setting it up so that they were going to face genocide, but basically Esther saves the day, Haman is executed, and the Jews are then able to turn the tables on their enemies and eliminate their enemies, and they have rest from their enemies. And that's the whole point of this feast. The Jews accepted the custom because Haman had plotted against them and was destroyed. They wanted to remember this. And really, folks, this is the purpose of the book of Esther, is to understand this is a non-Mosaic feast, why this feast was instituted. And it has to do with the whole story of Esther. So the Jews called this celebration Purim and imposed the celebration upon their descendants. Basically, they bound their descendants from posterity from that time on. Every year, the Jews were to celebrate Purim, the Feast of Purim, to remember how God gave them rest from their enemies. And that even happens to this day. <clears throat> Queen Esther wrote with full authority to confirm the establishment of Purim. So she lends her credibility as the queen of the empire to basically grant the authority that this was to be the celebration from here on out to remember yearly God granting them rest from their enemies. Now that brings us to chapter 10, and chapter 10 is obviously very small, it's only three verses, but it discusses the greatness of Mordecai. So the writer records that Xerxes I, in the first verse, imposed a tribute throughout the empire. For whatever reason, for us, we need to know that Xerxes basically is imposing a tribute. But that's not all it tells us. You get to verse 2, the writer also lists where the account of Xerxes I and Mordecai are written. So the record of what happens during the reign of Xerxes I and the administration of Mordecai are written in the chronicles of the kings of Persia. And that's what the writer is telling us here. 
And then finally, he's going to talk about the greatness of Mordecai. We see that in verse 3. Mordecai was second only to Xerxes I as far as his authority and his power and was well received by his Jewish brethren. Why? Because he used his position to protect the Jews throughout the empire. And he is marked down as one of the greats in the history of God's people. 